Hello, this is Randy Starkey, pastor of Mariposa Baptist Church. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to another message from the Word of God. We hope that it will be a challenge and encouragement to you. If you are not a part of a local church, we would love to have you come and gather with us. We meet together every Sunday morning at 9.30 for Bible study and 10.30 for our worship service. We also meet again on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock for prayer and Bible study together. Again, we would love to have you come and join together with our body of believers to grow in your faith. We are located at 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina, zip code 28164. Again, that's 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina. You can also go to our website to find out more information at www.mariposabc.org. And now, a message from God's Word. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts as we continue our time there. Now, if you pay attention to the portion of Scripture that is listed on the screen, you might be struck with a great deal of fear. Now, while I pride myself, using pride in a positive sense, uh, of a, to be a preacher who preaches through Scripture expositionally, there are most certainly times when taking that literally verse by verse would not be the most beneficial, partly because the meaning is, comes in the context overall. So we're not going to walk through this verse by verse, and so you can rest easy. Although we are going to read the entirety of that, so our scripture reading will be a little longer this morning. Before we go to that, just to address the topic for this morning or the subject of this text, I titled it Parting Words, not because of the recent events, but because the story of which is before us in the book of Acts is most often reflected upon in its conclusion, and that is in the parting words of Stephen. Most of us, as we think of the story of Stephen, if you're familiar with it, are familiar with how it ends, Stephen being persecuted and stoned, and in his parting words declares, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then one final statement, Lord, forgive them. Do not hold this sin to their charge. Now we remember that, and it's inspirational in one respect, but it, in many other respects it doesn't seem very realistic. Because we, from a human perspective, often are, often are guided more on the ideas of justice, retaliation, and sometimes revenge. This is more inherent to our existence. We are people who want justice, and most certainly we should be people, people who do indeed pursue justice in the moment. But as Christians, we understand that justice most certainly will not always be served in this life, but that is not evidence that justice will not be served, but rather that justice will fully and finally be served for all people of all times everywhere. And because of that, we stand as those who trust in the Word of God and in the sovereignty of God, even in the circumstances that aren't going the way you and I would design them. Therefore, we do not merely retaliate. That is more our human nature in the moment. In retaliation, I'm using that in the sense of how we would knee-jerk respond in light of particular circumstances. It is often guided by our emotions and most certainly by the cultural 
influence is upon us. We develop our responses often based on those. To give you an illustration of that is, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, if I'm driving down the road here in Stanley or anywhere around here and suddenly I hear someone lay on the horn, my knee-jerk response to that normally because of the context and culture in which I live is somebody is ready to take me out. I'm looking to see if they're flipping me the bird. That guy, I've done something wrong or they're just, well, to use a, a, a negative term, they're just idiots, right? That's our knee-jerk. But if I'm driving down the road in Haiti and I hear a horn, it doesn't even faze me. In fact, if I don't hear a horn, I would most certainly be concerned. Context develops our responses. And so often for us, retaliation is a knee-jerk response to the circumstances that we face as human, sinful human beings. And then that leads to another response or the further response of revenge to get back, which is inherent in us as humans, in our sinfulness, but nevertheless, as believers, we believe in what God says, that God is the avenger, which then leads us back to the very first concept of justice, that God indeed will render justice to all. But knowing that is one thing, experiencing that in our lives is another, and most certainly doesn't just happen because we became Christians. And so Stephen's story is motivational. I hope that it is the desire, most certainly, of all believers that that would be how we would respond in the face of injustice to its greatest extreme in this life. Let's read this lengthy account of Stephen, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made 
him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you, do, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to, to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals for your, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and, and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols and, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of da days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High 
does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Our Father, as we contemplate this particular text, we pray that you would use it to teach us. We know, Lord, that this is your word. It's not by chance. It's not left to our opinions and, and our, merely our ways of deciding to practically respond, but rather it's left to the power of your Spirit at work, revealing to our, our hearts and our minds the very power of the Word of God that is at work in us. So Lord, help us to hear your Word today. May we not place ourselves above the authority of the Word, but rather may we be willing to submit ourselves underneath the authority of your Word and allow your Word to convict our hearts, to, to shape our thinking, and to transform our lives, ultimately conforming us to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. It's a lot of text. And in reading such a lengthy text, it's easy for us to, to merely get lost in the story, which that in itself is not a bad thing, to, to hear the story, but hopefully to hear it in such a way that our minds and our hearts engage and begin to ask some questions. And with the first being, what does this have to do with me? And even more importantly, what does this have to do with us as a body of believers, as a corporate body that God has called together? And it's to that end that we seek to understand the text. It's not just a window into the history of events, but it is recorded by God's sovereign decision to reveal this particular word to us for a reason. So we begin with the description of Stephen. Now we know Stephen because last time uh, we saw in chapter 6, the beginning of that as that the numbers of disciples were increasing. With the increasing of disciples come the increase of dilemmas and struggles and trials, and they had to respond. We, we discussed the response of the apostles to that and of the church to that, and in the midst of that response, they, they chose out seven men. And, and as you notice, with the description of that, it named Stephen and followed Stephen with a description. Now, I think the description, again, as I said last week, is to be applied to all the men that were chosen, but I think purposely Luke lands it here because it is then Stephen that he's going to use uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit to then further illustrate the working of God through his people in the church. 
And so it does tell us that they chose out Stephen, a man full of, of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit, and then later full of faith. Here, Stephen, full of grace and power, notice this, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now something, a description that we will almost every other instance find applied to the apostles. But here we have what we often call, the, the initially wasn't a technical deacon at this point, that hadn't developed yet, but it was the beginnings of it. But for our purposes, a deacon who is described as doing that which even the apostles had been granted the power to do. Now, I, I read this and I'm reminded of something particular. And that is this, simply, that the purpose of God's grace in our lives is for us to take action. The purpose of God's grace in our lives is to take action, to live in a particular way. So it wasn't a description of Stephen merely to, to identify a particular character. In fact, here when it says in Stephen, full of grace and power, that is not a statement that, that, that's meant to cause us to think about the nature and character of Stephen. It certainly is a description of that because how else would they know that unless Stephen was evidencing these kinds of things. But what does it mean for, to identify a person as full of grace and power? Well, at the end of the day, the point here is not Stephen, but of God, what God is doing, and the purpose for which God does all that He is doing. It is on God, or by the power of God, or for the purpose of God, that Stephen was full of grace. It's not a description of him being, as we would often say, Stephen was a gracious man. No, that's not what it means. Full of grace has everything to do with what God was doing in Stephen. Stephen was full of grace because of the gracious gifting of God. And the power that Stephen had wasn't a power of his own, but a power that is based upon God being at work in his life. Stephen was not an apostle, but he was amongst the disciples, the masses, until being chosen for a particular reason, because it was evident that God was moving in his life. But here's the point I want to make. That Stephen, in this case, was a passive, so to speak, agent of this being full of grace and power. This was God's active doing in his life. And God does this in one sense or another in every believer's life. God is filling believers, his children, with grace. And he's filling them with power. How do I know that? Well, we can go to other passages in Scripture to, to identify that. We go back to the beginning of Acts when, when Jesus instructed his disciples to wait for him and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, but at that time that they would be filled with power and that they would be his witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what God does through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. But here's the point I ultimately want to make, that when God gifts us, and we know he does in many in various ways, but when he gifts us, it is not for our purposes. It is not for our best life now. It is not for us to, to get good jobs. It is not for us to live at ease and have nice houses. It is for us to employ those gifts to the ends of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth, beginning right across the street. God's purpose of grace in our lives is not merely to get us through the doors of heaven, as we would say it. It has a purpose here and now. Our eternal lives begin the day we were born again. God filled us with His grace, and He gave us all of His grace. And He fills us with power for that which He calls us to, whether that's right next door or 
on the other side of the earth, God empowers his people with purpose. And we are to be reminded, even in the life of Stephen, what we might call an ordinary man, except for the work of God in him, employed these gifts in such a way that it became very evident to the people around him that God was at work in him. Thus, they could define him or describe him as a man full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. But it wasn't just the people who were saying, wow, look at that, what Stephen's doing. It was among all the people. And so there was more than one response. So the second thing I would point you to in this text is not only the purpose of God's grace, but the opposition to God's grace. Folks, while we are to be people who pursue justice in this life, we understand from the very beginning that justice will not always be the case and life will not be fair and it will not always be based on truth. We know this as Christians. This does not come as a surprise. Now, that doesn't mean we pursue experiencing injustice. That's not what I'm saying, but we know this. And so I point to uh, the fact that we see that Stephen is seeking to be faithful to his calling and, and being a man full of grace and power and doing good things, doing great wonders and signs. There was a response that was not favorable, and it most certainly wasn't fair, and it wasn't based on truth, not from those who were opposing. We find that there were those among them, and it gives us a list of some of those, a uh, description of them uh, from the synagogue of the freedmen, Whatever that might have been, we don't know particularly from Cyrenians and Alexandrians and Cilicia and Asia. So it's, it's, it's broad in its makeup, but they rose up and disputed with Stephen. As Christians, we need to go forth into this world understanding that this will be our experience. That we are operating in a world, while it may not have been the norm constantly in our generations, our generation is an exceptional one in our existence. It is becoming less and less exceptional and more and more normalized to the world around us. And I, I, I'm not a prophet. I don't know. I pray for revival. But if revival doesn't come in our nation, our nation very well will experience what much of the world has always experienced at the hands of the gospel. And it will not be fair. It will not be just. And it won't always have a good outcome. And it most certainly will not allow you to experience your best life now, praise the Lord, we understand that our best life is not to be lived now, but we look forward to a life that is much greater and grander as we see set in the example of Stephen himself. So Stephen is faithful to employ the gifts of grace that God has granted to him, the very mundane gifts in a sense that he is to be a witness and he is doing that very thing and it's met with unfair, unjust opposition. It also reminds me that in the midst of our seeking to live forth the gospel, fulfilling the mission to which God has called us, whatever that particularly might look like, we most certainly will experience a clash of worldviews. We see this in the story of Stephen. This is not a new thing. While the, the terminology of biblical worldview, secular worldview, and, and any other worldview might be somewhat new in our modern area to define it that way, worldviews, clashing of worldviews has always been the case even in the days of Stephen. But take note, as they rose up and disputed with Stephen, it says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit. Again, a reminder of God at work in the midst of His people. 
They were no match for him. Not necessarily because it doesn't tell us what kind of academic level Stephen had attained to, how, how great of a debater he was. It just merely says that in the face of it, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, which again I remind you as we've been reminded in the book of Acts that Jesus gave this very promise that we do not need to worry about how he might answer in the face of opposition, but that in that hour God will grant us by the power of the spirit what it is that we need to say. This is the outworking of that very promise. This is the practical, pragmatic evidence of God doing what he said he would do through the power of the Spirit. But it says they, they secretly instigated men. And they said, they, we've heard him speak blasphemous words. But take note in verse 13, it says, they set up false witnesses. So they lied about them. But notice what they said. This man never ceases to speak against the holy place in the law. That's the first part. Look at verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That is true. You see, the clash of worldviews is this. Often we treat the gospel as merely a marketing campaign. That if we just market it right, we do it well, that we, we, we put the, the facings and trappings around it, that if we could just get that right, then certainly the world will go, oh, now I get it. But in light of the clash of worldviews, what you need to understand is that the difference is not information. Yes, the information is necessary. We must preach the gospel. But the, the, the dividing point is not merely that we need to figure out how to better debate it or how to say it nicer or more in more winsome ways. While those things most certainly should be goals in our lives, in our culture, but it doesn't rest upon that. Even when all those things are in place, there will be those who will look at what we're doing and identify what we're doing rightly, but see it as an evil. This is a clash of worldviews. We see it around the world even today. We see it in our own nation. And the more and more we stand firm as Christians, which we really don't have the option, it is our calling to stand firm, there will be those in our own culture, even maybe within our own circles, who we might define as good people, nice guys and gals, but nevertheless, when they hear the truth, their response will not be, oh, I've, now that you've said it that way, I can get on board. But rather, they will see it for what it is, and they will oppose it, which is exactly what happened here. And they will often oppose it with any effort they possibly can, even at times through the means of setting up false accusations. The end justifies the means. And if you're not on the side of absolute truth, that most certainly makes sense. The gospel is not a marketing pitch that needs improvement. It is a message to be proclaimed. Now, I just want to call attention to one thing that we're going to come back to. At verse 15, it stands out to me, and, and it's one of those things that when I read it, I stop and I go, what is that supposed to mean? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I'll tuck that away for just a moment. We're going to come back to that at, at closer to the end. But then we enter into the content of this passage, the part which you probably don't want me to go verse by verse, and I'm not. Stephen then lays down for them the gospel. 
Now, he does it maybe quite differently than we might begin in our day because he's speaking to a people who are very familiar with Stephen's own Bible and the, the law and Moses. And he has a purpose to, to lead them to the point that he wants to. But nevertheless, he speaks forth the gospel. Now, he does so really under four categories as we read the entirety of that, that sermon what we find is that Stephen first highlights God's promise. Now, that's the broad perspective. He does so through the promise given to Abraham and the fulfillment of those in particular historical ways, pointing forward to a much greater fulfillment, but promise. But in the midst of that promise, he also then reveals to them the providence of God. That God, in the midst of that promise, having made that promise, despite circumstances, he names the very negative, difficult circumstances, shows how God was providentially working out all his purposes, even through the rejection of Moses, or even before that, through a childless Abraham, through a brother sold into slavery, then Moses rejected. God providentially worked through those tragic, difficult events, even to the point of 400 years to bring about his promises. And Stephen reminds us of that. God promises. He's made a promise. God providentially carries out all things in history to the end of his promises fulfilled. But those promises are then wrapped up in what Stephen reminds the people through the words of Moses, through a prophet. It wasn't through Moses himself. Moses was not the penultimate, but rather that God would raise up a prophet like him, which was a, a pointing forward to something that had not yet arrived. So this promise that was providentially be working out would have its resolution in this particular prophet. And then Stephen reminds them that in the interim, until that day, that God was present with them. He did not leave them to themselves to figure this out, to do it on their own, but rather with, in the tent of meetings and then later in the, the temple that God was present with them, though he did not need a house to, to dwell in. It was a reminder to the people of God that God was there. It's a great message, promise, providence, a prophet, God's presence. But then at the end of this, everything turns on a dime, because Stephen couldn't leave it there. What a great reminder of the history of what God was doing through His chosen people. Let's just stop there. Let's, let's pray. Let's sing a song and pray and go our merry way and, and, and talk about how good the sermon was. But Stephen couldn't do that because that's not the end of the gospel. He then addresses their perverseness. He calls them out. He indicts them as the sinners that they are. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears. Which, when he says that, what's ringing in their ears is the very thing that Moses said, that God would circumcise their hearts, not their flesh. And he did a, indicts them as standing outside of, of those very words of Moses. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, it reminds us that the gospel, for us as those being faithful to the gospel, requires us to bring this point in the end, that we are talking to sinners. No, we're not looking down our noses as though we're better than them, I pray. But most certainly, people must be indicted as the sinners that they are, because without that, there is no need 
to repent and believe. Stephen goes on and says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And here's the, the penultimate of that indictment, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You religious people who received the law, Jews, notice this statement, as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, that last statement has caused a great deal of debate. We go back to the story of Moses receiving the oracles from God, the Torah, and we try to make sense out of Stephen's statement here, delivered by angels. But understand this, in, in the broadest sense, at the very least, and, 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 and this is a debatable thing to look into further, but nevertheless, at the broadest sense, what we understand is in this statement, you who received the law as delivered by angels is a broad term. When we have, say angels, we have this paradigm in our minds. Of what it means. But angel simply means a divine messenger in its broadest sense. In a very particular sense, an angel would be one particular sent by God, applying to a divine being or even to a human being at times in the Scriptures, one who is a messenger of God. But nevertheless, the point is here that they believed that the law had been delivered divinely to them via messenger. Now, what made them so angry, I believe, and Luke points this out to us, is that as they sat there in the beginning, before Stephen even spoke, they recognized, in some sense, whatever it's supposed to be, that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Now when we read that term, it can be taken merely not to just speaking of his physical face, but his presence. That his presence was there like the presence of an angel. Now, that is not intended for us to, to sit around and think, well, what does that mean? Well, maybe his face was glowing, or maybe he had a halo over his head. I mean, what, what would that mean? Is it possible his face was going? Sure. We read about that in the story of Moses. He came down from the mountain, and what happened? He had to veil his face, right? Because he'd been in the presence of the Lord. That's a possibility. But Luke doesn't tell us that, nor does Scripture ever tell us anywhere that when, when we say a face of an angel, this is what it means. It's a visual thing. But no, the point is that Luke is trying to make a connection here because in the presence of the people, there was nothing. There was nothing particular apart from or concerning Stephen of which they could indict him on as a bad person, but rather he sat before them as one who was bringing a divine message. They heard the message. They didn't like the message. And then when he says, you're the guys, by the way, who you, you believe that the law was granted or given to us by one delivered like an angel. I believe this statement in itself was the final straw. And Luke's pointing out this, that Stephen was indeed a messenger from God. The message that he brought was, was equal to it, even beyond the, the message that Moses brought. It was the fulfillment of that message in the persons of the righteous one whom they had now betrayed and murdered. And as such, they felt the indictment and were reminded that the, that the truth brings severe and deep conviction to the lives of people. And that conviction sometimes leads to, to the reception of that message and repentance and faith, but it sometimes results in people getting very, very angry. I've been reminded many times in my own life with some, I won't name them, that I've experienced, that I've sought to, to live the, the gospel before in all my failures, but to speak the gospel to them. And then when I do so, it would make them ill. And those tend to be the ones from a humorous perspective that I want to say, well, they'll never get saved. But 
I'm reminded the fact that when the gospel is heard and there is that kind of response, it means that it's still having an effect. And there's still hope that that effect might very well be embraced and the repentance and faith may be the result. But there's also the reality that in that conviction that people rest themselves in their own selfishness and they double down and they lash out. And that's what happened here. They ground their teeth at him. I mean, that's a mental imagery right there. I mean, I don't think the necessary means that they sit there and went like this, you know, but rather it gives us a, a real true understanding of how it was having an effect on them in every way. It burned them inside. This was their emotional and mental response. But then as conviction falls, when truth is declared, it most certainly brings conviction. Sometimes to the end that people get angry and oppose us and retaliate. But for the believer, when the truth is proclaimed, regardless of the outcome, it will thrill our hearts as it did even Stephen in light of the circumstances that he faced. They ground their teeth at him, but... He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now we know this is a supernatural miracle in itself. I don't know if that's the, the case for all who, who stand in a place like Stephen. I don't know. I can only hope and pray that in, in the hunker-down rooms of Afghanistan, Christian missionaries and believers who will very likely, if they haven't already, give their lives for standing on the gospel will experience this very thing. Is it possible? Yes. But this I know, that God in His Word has told us that in that time, He will provide for His children. And our hope is not in how we feel about that kind of circumstance today, but rather when we're faced with that, in that moment, Christ will come through for us. And the experience is that when we're faithful to the truth to our calling, wherever, whenever, that when we employ our gift of grace granted to us, that our experience will be likened unto this. No, you might not visually, physically or literally see the heavens open and Jesus standing, but your experience will be akin to this, the joy and fulfillment that will come. Because if you are a believer, the deepest desire that you have, whether you recognize it or not, is to experience the glory of God and the magnifying of His Son Jesus Christ. So when we employ God's gift of grace in us to its extent and we declare the truth and we stand upon it regardless of circumstances or outcome, this is the experience that God grants to the faithful. He doesn't guarantee the outcome. He never said anywhere in Scripture that if you're faithful to me, I will preserve your life. I will preserve you in life eternal much beyond this, but nowhere. And we know that Scripture bears that truth out, that nowhere has there ever been promised a life of health, wealth, and comfort for those who are faithful to the gospel. In fact, the normal experience for those who pursue the gospel passionately and with purpose in every way, you will face unfair, unjust opposition along the way. But then we find the conclusion of Stephen's experience. At the end... Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I'll simply say this. I know this is not our nature. When we're treated unjustly, when things don't go the way they should have gone, I know this is not how we 
naturally respond, but this most certain as a Christian should be our pursuit. Lord, make me this kind of person. That regardless of the, the way I am treated, no matter what kind of opposition, whether it's I define it as fair or unfair or understandable or whatever, but that at the end of the day, I, against all odds, would have this attitude that I would be more concerned about their salvation than I would be about where I stand in the moment. I can only imagine, again, to go back to the illustration, that there are those who have left home and family at great risk years ago and to serve the gospel in a place like Afghanistan. And they did so because they believed the gospel needed to go forth, not just to nice people, but to the Taliban. And that even as they may very well lose their lives, that their hope and desire is that those people will come to faith in Christ. Because that matters more than whether I get another day on earth. Let me give you five points of conclusion in light of this. Number one, consider how you employ God's gift of grace in you. It was not granted to you simply to be employed here in these four walls. Most certainly, there's scripture that talks about giftedness for the sake of the body. But God's grace goes beyond these four walls. How are you employing God's gift of grace in your life, in your job, at your school, in your neighborhood. However you can articulate and define that, increase. Number two, prepare for the unjust opposition of this world. Folks, when we come together in the church, wherever the church is gathering right now, we do so for multiple reasons. Yes, we come for worship. That's what we call it. I mean, but if we're going to, like bring that down into some specifics. Obviously, we are doing things like we're declaring truth to one another. When we sing the truth of the gospel, we're doing it to one another and to our audience of God to declare His goodness. When we listen to the Scriptures read and explained, we are, we are listening for the Word of God to, to do something to change us, to convict us, to strengthen us. But we most certainly are doing it to prepare for the days to come. We are to be edified and equipped. The difficulty for us is because we have lived for multiple generations in a world and a life of ease. We've not been called, many people have come and lived and died and never been called to, to face a great deal of, of difficulty because of the gospel. But again, that's not the norm. So when you come together, when you're sitting here, you're not sitting here to, to evaluate the pastor's sermon. You're not sitting here to, to determine how it makes you feel. You're sitting here to be prepared for the opposition that will come in this world. And as you know now, it seems a little more possible in your lifetime. And folks, music styles don't prepare you for that. Activities don't prepare you for that. You know what prepares you for that? The Word of God. Number three, remember, we can't argue opposing worldviews people with opposing worldviews to Christ. That doesn't mean we don't seek to debate, but we understand that the power is not in debate. We need to be reminded the power is in the speaking forth of the gospel and the indicting sinners as the sinners that they are. Because this is what we're called to do. Remember that. It's not about your personality. It's not about your intelligence. It's about the gospel. Learn that. Know it well. Rehearse it. And then share it. Number four. Actually, just gave you both three and four in that one statement. Number four, three was remember, we cannot argue 
people of opposing worldviews to Christ. Therefore, we must preach the gospel and indict sinners and allow God to do what only God can do. Number five, we should strive to be like Christ, seeking the forgiveness even of the undeserving. And even of the undeserving who oppose us. Because we're reminded that at the outset of this story, we're one of them. Undeserving. Sinners. Deserving of God's wrath. That's all we're deserving of. And in be reminded of that, then we seek to strive, even those whom oppose us. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus declared to his own people, don't retaliate. If they strike you, turn the other cheek. That's not normal. That's not our human nature, but Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He says, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. Go the extra mile. He says, pray for those who persecute you. And, and I don't think he had an in mind there in precatory prayers, like, God, kill them. But rather for their salvation. So we, as human beings still struggling through our humanity and our sinful humanity, we need to pray and seek to become more like Christ in seeking the forgiveness of even those that if it were left up to us, we wouldn't necessarily want to forgive. May we be that kind of people for the glory of God. We say things like, I love Jesus. What does that mean? That is not a sentimental declaration, or it might be, it shouldn't be. It should be much more than that. It should be a declaration that exposes your deep felt emotions for your Savior, but also your intended life for Him. We're going to sing in our closing song, a song you're familiar with, one that does make you feel good. It has some good points to it. But as you sing, I hope you're reminded that your love for Christ is not just words. It is not an emotion. It is much more than that. It is a declaration that we will act and live for the mission of God. <coughs> Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. May you work in us today according to your divine power and for your purposes. Whether that need be conviction in our hearts right now, whether our action needs to be acts of repentance or whether it needs to be motivation and, and, and thrill of our souls to, to be more active in taking forth the gospel to one another and to the world who's dying without Christ. Father, do whatever you desire in our hearts, whatever is the need. You know each of our hearts. You know where we are, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So Father, may your spirit, by the means of your word, change us today. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.